He rode on a donkey, symbolizing the character of his kingdom would be one of peace, but that peace would not come without a great fight. And indeed, in the coming days, and especially Thursday and Friday and Saturday, there was a great battle that took place, the ultimate battle as Jesus secured victory over Satan and sin and death as he hung there on the cross, as his body was placed in that tomb. And then on Easter Sunday morning, as he gloriously rose from the dead, and then some 40 days later, ascended into heaven. Yes, that ancient foe in Genesis chapter 3 where we're told that there will be enmity between the the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of this world. And though he had thought he prevailed, yet the latter part of the week we call Passion Week, Jesus secured that victory. And at the appointed time, that victory will be realized in full in the sense that even though Jesus has the victory over Satan, sin, and death even today, yet Satan is loosed for a time under the sovereign control of God for the purposes of God. And at that appointed time, Satan and all the enemies of God will be destroyed. And Christ and the saints of the Most High will reign forever in the kingdom of God. But until that time, and really since Genesis chapter 3, there's been a spiritual battle that has taken place and is taking place and will take place. And I have a tendency to not think much about it. Jimmy Stewart, no, not the actor. One of our missionaries we supported some years ago who was one of our missionary guests in the early 90s, who had served for a number of years in Hong Kong for the purpose of taking trips into China when it was very difficult to even take Bibles into China to do missionary work. Uh, Jimmy was one of our missionary participants for that particular conference. And one morning of the conference, first thing, I, I noticed Jimmy was very anxious to speak with me. By the way, at the time of the conference, Jimmy was serving as a missions pastor at a PCA church in Jackson, Mississippi. So he wasn't on the field at that particular time. And so that morning, he was anxious to speak with me, and he said, Tim, I've got to talk to you. And I said, well, Jimmy, tell me what's what's going on. I thought maybe the host didn't provide the proper breakfast that morning. And you know how important it is to feed missionaries. And he said, you may think I'm crazy, but I had a demonic visitation last night. Well, I have to tell you, thinking he was crazy did cross my mind when he said that. And so, of course, I responded, well, Jimmy, thank you very much. It's been great to have you. Here's some cash for your expenses. Have a great trip back to Jackson. We'll see you, man. Get out of here. No, I didn't say that. We talked and we prayed And I was reminded yet again of the reality of the spiritual battle that is upon us and has always been. Now, Jimmy told me that during his years of service in Hong Kong and 
and in China and living in the Orient and in various other places of the world, uh, demonic activity is more the norm than the exception. And so he had had a number of, of these experiences while, while living in Hong Kong. But here in the good old United States of America with our Western culture and our uh, wonderfully so, our tradition of Christianity, uh, the, the, the spiritual battle can be masked. We'll kind of be beneath our radar, so to speak. And it's occasions like this that, that remind us that when Jesus came to bring his kingdom, in order for there to be peace, there would have to be a conflict. And there was a conflict, and there is a conflict, and one day that conflict will be over. But the point is this. Today, how are we to live in the midst of the realities of this spiritual battle. And really what we'll find in the book of Daniel of all places, and in verse 27, we're told how we are to live in the midst of the spiritual battle. And it's simply this. Be about your king's business. And so today I want to talk want us to talk about what does it mean to be about the king's business we know this battle is raging on we know that Jesus is on the throne Uh, we know that even in the midst of the battle and the difficulties of that that that's all being used to bring about God's sovereign purposes but we need to be wise as believers and understand that we are in a fight Paul said in Ephesians 6.13, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Let me just pause. I know some of you do wrestle as a sport. And it's very, it's hands-on, right? Hand-to-hand combat. I mean, this is a really difficult, intense battle that is upon us. So we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And Paul further tells us in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12 how we are to respond to this. You know, are, are we to be looking for demons in every corner? You know, maybe we've read some popular books and bought, that are largely based on really bad theology and they just hype this spiritual thing. There's a demon in every corner. no. Are we paranoid? Uh, Do we run around confused? Do we run around looking for demons about? Do we run, hide, surrender, retreat? Do Do we try to outwit the enemy in our own power? No, Paul says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So as we answer the question, what does it mean to be about the Lord's business in the midst of this battle that is upon us today, one answer Scripture gives us is to be strong in the Lord, to put on the whole armor of God that he has provided for us, that we may stand up under it. Another way that we might 
approach this battle is to hear the message from last week from Daniel chapter 8 as we considered knowing the enemy's character. And you may remember that there in Daniel 8, primarily verses 23 through 26, we saw that the enemy is merciless, he's a schemer, powerful, but regulated, he's a deceiver, and he's finite. So not only putting on the whole armor of God and standing in that armor, but also wisely knowing the enemy. And then today we want to look at another way that we're able to be about the Lord's business in the midst of this fight, how we might stand firm in the whole armor of God, even as we know the character of the enemy, we also need to know the tactics of the enemy. And today I want us to look at three ways that Daniel describes the enemy attacking the people of God. And so we'll be looking today, going back in Daniel chapter 8, looking today primarily at verses 9 through 12. And the tactics are simply this. What the enemy has in his sights is the cross, unity, and also he has truth in his sight. So those three things, the cross, unity, and the truth. And so those are the tactics that I think is important for us to know as we seek to stand firm in the whole armor of God so that we might be about the king's business even in the midst of the battle. So let me just read these verses for us. Daniel chapter 8, beginning with verse 9 through verse 12. Out of the one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven, and some of the host and some and some of the hosts and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host, and the regular burnt offerings was taken away from him. And the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offerings because of transgressions. And it will throw truth to the ground. And it will act and prosper. Let us pray. Our Father, as we come to this text before us, grant us wisdom that we might understand the tactics of the enemy, that we might also be encouraged That in light of those tactics that we are to be about your business as your people, even in the battle. Bless our hearts today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So look at verse 11. There, as we have been talking about this little horn in Daniel chapter 8 is identified as Antiochus Epiphanes. We've already reviewed the history. We looked at the character of Antiochus Epiphanes last week. And today we want to look at this, this first tactic in verse 11 where it says that, that he, that is the little horn or the many antichrists, those who come in the spirit of the antichrist, will take away the regular burnt offerings. And that's clearly referring to the daily morning and evening offerings that were presented at the temple If you were to turn to Exodus chapter 29, verse 38 through 46, you will find this mandated 
in God's Word. And so why were there then daily, did you know that? There was a little lamb slaughtered every morning, and there was a little lamb slaughtered every evening. So why? Why did God dictate his people in the Old Testament were to be about these morning and evening sacrifices. Let me read verses 45 and 46 of Exodus chapter 29. The Lord said, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. You see, these sacrifices the morning and evening daily sacrifices and, all, and the entire sacrificial system pointed to the fact that God was their God and that God had provided a way for these sinful people <laughs> to be his holy people. And that way was by sacrifice. Turn to Genesis chapter 3. And at the close of Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve had sinned, after they, were alien, they alienated themselves from God. What does God do? God slaughtered an animal, sacrifice, skinned it, and covered Adam and Eve with the skins. Beautifully picturing God's way, God's provision for sinful people to come before Him and stand And not be destroyed. And in Genesis chapter 3. We see a beautiful foreshadowing. Of the cross of Jesus Christ. Where it was his shed blood. And the covering of that blood. And the covering of his perfect righteousness. That allows us to come before God Almighty. To be his people. And for him to be our God. On Good Friday, Jesus breathed his last, and he hung there on the cross, the ultimate once-for-all sacrifice, fulfilling what was meant by the morning and evening sacrifices and the entire sacrificial system. God's provision of a way for sinners to come before him. Can you think of anything more basic than that? And here's the point I want to make. I don't really think Satan is interested in destroying the cross. He can't. He's already lost. But let's just say that it was still an open question. I suspect it would be a good thing, you know, at the end of the day. But really, I think something better for Satan is for God's people to neglect their daily need of Jesus. That would be even better. And functionally, that is destroying the cross. I think we need to see what we find here in Daniel chapter 8, morning and evening sacrifices, daily being reminded of their need for God's provision for their sin. And what is the cross but daily? You know, the old hymn, we need thee every other day. We need thee once or twice a month. No, we need thee every hour, right? Well, see, 
in a sense, Satan wants us to buy into we need the, oh, maybe once a month. Satan wins if you only and if I only think about the shed blood of Jesus Christ on Sunday, but the rest of the week, the other six days, we're just about our own business, not even, not even pausing one day of the six to give thanks for the fact that Jesus died for me. The sinister tactic is to diminish our need of Jesus. That's, I think, what's in mind here. I mean, you know, when we, are, when we turn from Christ to love self, when we turn from Christ to complacency, when we turn from Christ to be discouraged, when we try to build our own record of, of righteousness saying, yeah, Jesus, I need to believe in you, but I've got to add my good works to it, whatever that, that might be. We're, in effect, functionally taking away the morning and evening sacrifices. Turning from our, the reality that we need Jesus every hour. So the question for you and me here in light of this text is, how often do I think of Jesus and my need of him I'm quite skilled at doing exactly what Antiochus Epiphanes did in Jerusalem between the years of 175 B.C. and 164 B.C. Taking away the morning and evening sacrifices that is not resting and embracing the fact that I need Jesus continually. I am a master at doing that. In fact, I think if you were to say, Tim, what is your greatest struggle? I would say my greatest struggle is feeling like I can go the Christian life on my own, that I really don't need Jesus. Now, I'll stand up here and tell you I need Jesus, and I'll tell you you need Jesus. But the, the proof in the pudding is, how do I live? And I can almost guarantee you this, this week, Holy Week of all weeks, at any given moment this week, you may find me not needing Jesus. Because I have taken away what God has given me <laughs> to, in, in a sense... This, this daily reminder, the cross of Jesus Christ, that I need Jesus every single hour. Does that make any sense to you? I think this is the greatest struggle of me, my, my greatest struggle. I suspect there might be one or two others here today that might rank this amongst one of their great struggles as well. I need thee every hour. <laughs> Do we live like that? Let me tell you something. Satan has the cross in his sights for you and for me. And it's not to destroy it. It's to tempt us to think we really don't need it as much as God says we do. Secondly, the sanctuary. Antiochus IV never, to my knowledge, demolished the sanctuary. We know that to be true. But he functionally destroyed the sanctuary. How did, how did he do that? 
He overthrew it, the text says in verse 11. The place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And how might this tactic that that Antiochus IV employed way back in the second century B.C. actually means something to us uh, today. Let me ask you this. this I, I wish I could give you a quiz. I guess I could, of course, Hunter did a dialogue, one of the missions conference. I could probably do that this morning, but let's not. But if I were to say to you, what is the sanct- God's sanctuary today, you would answer rightly, God's people, the church, Right? The Old Testament sanctuary, the temple, all of that pointed to the true, real sanctuary, which is a spirit-indwelled people of God, the, the church. That, that vital organism of, that we know as, as the church, that's the sanctuary. And how might this tactic to overthrow the sanctuary work today? One of the most productive means, I believe, that Satan has in his little arsenal, the most productive tactic to overthrow the sanctuary is, is, is not working so that all the little Christians will be arrested by the local authorities, although that has happened and that is happening in, in places around the world, and it may happen even um, in our country. I may get thrown in jail one day because of, of what I preach. But I don't think that's the, the most productive tactic that Satan has, nor do I think that, that our property is probably going to be confiscated or this building torn down. I mean, it could, I suppose. Church properties are confiscated in places around the world, and church buildings are torn down in some places around the world. That, that is true. You know, maybe a more likely tactic is to is to legislate us out of business, and we kind of see that, we kind of see that taking place today with some of these really troubling legal uh, policy things that have taken place. But I don't really think that's going to destroy the church. It may impose hardship on us. Uh, it may be more difficult for us to do business in in this culture. But I'll tell you what: the most productive means Satan has in his little arsenal, his tactic to destroy the church. It's not all this external stuff, but it's disrupting the unity of the believers within the church. I am my own worst enemy when it comes to buying into Satan's tactic to diminish my need of the cross in my own mind and heart. I'm my own worst enemy. He doesn't have to work too hard on me. I do that quite adept. I'm quite adept at that myself. And I just simply want to suggest to you that we may not be our own worst enemies when it comes to disunity within the church. We, we may be our own worst enemies is what I'm trying to say when it comes to disunity in the church. And so we see in Antiochus' day, he overthrew the sanctuary. God's people could not gather to worship. They could not gather to fellowship as the people of God. They could not gather uh, to sit under, you know, whatever teaching or instruction to, to, to be a part of the service of the temple. All of that was taken away. Their communion was destroyed and think of how many churches have been split because of disruptions in unity, 
the fellowship of the church, the preciousness of the unity of a church cannot be overestimated. Here's what Jesus said in John 17, 10 through 11. All mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And let me just simply lay it out for you as I see it. When I say our, I include myself. Our sin, our criticisms, our gossip, our politicking for our agendas, our lack of selfless love for one another, our lack of repentance and forgiveness of one another, our lack of meaningful involvement in the life of the church, our disrespect for the leadership, and our failures as leaders to shepherd God's people, all further Satan's tactic to disunify the church. And as I said earlier, in some, in some cases we may be our own worst enemy when it comes to overthrowing the sanctuary. Now my, my beloved fellow believers in Christ, it's hard to even say these things because it, I number myself among them. But here's the question. How have we contributed to disunity here at Covenant? The cross and unity are in Satan's sights. And sometimes we can be our own worst enemy in both of these. But thirdly, truth. Look at verse 12. We read this, and it, that is the enemy, that is the little horn, will throw truth to the ground. And this phrase literally means to drag God's truth in the mud. And we know that's basically what happened because Antiochus IV Epiphanes actually outlawed the reading of God's word and the possession of God's word. And it was literally thrown in the mud, discarded, outlawed. It was discredited, it was devalued, it was belittled, it was profaned, it was cast aside so it would have no longer any influence in the lives of the people or in the lives of that city or that, that land. And you know, today we may be concerned about the fact, and there have been periods of history where the Bible has been banned in certain places, where the Bible has been burned, uh, plenty of examples in history, in our day, even in our own country, where God's Word is being belittled. But the chief way truth is dragged through the mud, at least in my estimation, is the first way Satan tempted God's people to drag truth through the mud. Do you remember the question that Satan asked Eve there in the garden when he was tempting her 
Did God really say that you should not eat of that apple? In other words, questioning the authority of God's Word. And that really is, I think, a way to look at this tactic. Yes, there are those who question the authority of God's Word and they outright reject it. They reject the fact that it's inerrant and it's infallible, that it's the very Word of God, it's the the sole authority in life and practice. Yes, there are those who wrongly interpret it, who employ the critical method, for example, and come up with all kinds of fanciful interpretations of Scripture that are clearly error. And yes, there are those who twist Scripture to support their own thoughts and desires, making Scripture say what Scripture clearly doesn't say. And so there are attacks on the authority of the Scriptures today. There always has been. And I believe this is one of Satan's primary tactics to wage war against the people of God. Not only to tempt believers to think they really don't need Jesus every single moment of every single day, not not only to work in the lives of the believers in a church to tempt them to be disunifying not only those things but also to challenge and question the authority of God's word. You know, my business is the Bible, right? I make my living with the Bible. Let's just face it, that's what I do. And you would think that I would value the Bible more than most. And intellectually, I do. But as I can be my own worst enemy with diminishing the cross, as I can be my own worst enemy with being disunifying in the church, I can be my own worst enemy when it comes to not just simply thinking God's word is authoritative, but actually living as it is. And understanding that it is the precious word of God, transcendent truth, life itself that he has given to me. And here's my point. Not only is is Satan trying to work such that the authority of God's word is questioned and challenged, but can't we be tempted with that ourselves because we really don't come to God's word and value it as we should? We don't read it like it is words of life. We don't treat it as it is that precious pearl that was found in the field. We don't treat it like it is sweet as honey to the soul. We don't treat it like it is transcendent God speaking to us objective truth. And so we see then these three tactics, the cross, unity, and Scripture, being, among other things, but I think chiefly in the sights of Satan as he does battle against the church. In light of all of this then, how should we live? In, in, in light of all that we've looked at thus far in Daniel, in light of the character of the enemy, in light of these tactics, 
what should we be about as the church? And it's really beautiful that we're given an, give, given an example uh, to follow right here in God's Word. If you'll look at verse 27 of Daniel chapter 8, here it says, And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days, and then I rose and went about the king's business. But I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. So in light of all that Daniel has been shown in this vision, first, the realities made him sick. Look, the text says in verse 27, he lay sick in his bed for some days. And one response to all that we've, we've studied this far in Daniel and the reality of the spiritual warfare even in our day is that we may not lay sick in our bed, but we may feel sick. Over all of these things, we may be overcome with worry, with anger, with fear, maybe debilitating depression as we look out and see that at, at so much of the time it looks like the enemy is, is winning. We, winning. We may be heartsick over the travail that is taking place and the lives that are being ruined because of evil in our day. And secondly, like Daniel, we, we, we may consider just how terrible these, the, the character of the evil one is and, and how concerning these tactics that he employs are. The, the text tells us that, that Daniel was, was appalled. He, he was recoiled. He, maybe he just simply couldn't believe how evil and wicked this little horn would really be. You know, that could be a response that, that, that we might have, just being absolutely disgusted with the level of cruelty and evil of wickedness in our day. And all of this could move us to despair, could move us to retreat, could move us just simply to give up. But that's not the example of Daniel. Even though we see that he was physically affected by this vision and it should affect us too I hope you're that that the text has gotten your attention it sure gotten mine but at the end of the day how does Daniel respond I just love that he responds it's described in one way that after receiving after receiving this vision Daniel got up And he went about the king's business. And when we think about what the king's business is, we we can describe it in several ways. We may describe it as being about the Great Commission. We may describe it as living according to the Sermon on the Mount. We may describe it as as evangelism. We, We may describe it as being salt and light in culture. I mean, there are all sorts of ways to to think about being about the Lord's business, but in light of the three tactics that we've talked about today, I want to suggest three ways, or at least three three emphases that we should have to be about the king's business. And the first one is simply this. Lift high the cross of Jesus Christ. Not only in culture, but in our hearts. And every day, Come before him in the reality that I need thee every hour. Secondly, 
So be about the king's business of his provision to come before him. Secondly, be about the king's business with regards to his sanctuary, his church. Brothers and sisters, true unity is based on truth and out of love for Jesus. And one way that we're about the king's business is that we, we, set, we die to self for the church to be unified. And the third way that we're about the king's business is that we're serious about his truth. Not just on Sunday morning, but the way we view the truth in our hearts, that we love it and that we seek to live by it. We are to put on the full armor of God. We are to be aware of the enemy's tactics. And we are to be aware of the enemy's character. But most of all, we are to be like Daniel and do our duty in being about the king's business. And being about the king's business chiefly means we pursue holy living. Let us pray. Our Father, we ask you to grant us grace that we might be your people. We thank you that you have called us your people and you have told us that you are our God. And now, O King, grant us grace that we would be about your business and that we would seek to live holy lives for your glory, that the, the battle would not distract us from doing what you have called us to do, from being, for being who you have called us to be, and that is your holy people in this world. So work in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would take your hymnals and turn to hymn number 310 as we sing together, Rejoice the Lord is King. Let us stand.